You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. It's good to be with you. Hope you had a Merry Christmas and good time with your families if you were able to join them for Christmas. It's good to be back with you. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Our Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you that we have the privilege to gather together as your children who you have caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us now and that he would do his work. We pray as we come to your word that you have preserved for us. We pray for encouragement. We pray for edification. We pray for instruction. And we we pray for correction where it is needed. So instruct us now from your word, Lord, all for the sake of our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. Most of you know that uh, as I have an opportunity to preach, I'm working my way through the book of James. And I think this is the fourth installment, if memory serves, fourth installment in our uh, trek through the book of James thus far, written, of course, by James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, chapter 1. And we will read uh, verses 1 through 11, but our focus this morning will be 9 through 11. But for context, we'll read the entire passage. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways." But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of this sermon is The Trials of Poverty and Wealth. The Trials of Poverty and Wealth. Now, if you read verses 9, 10, and 11, uh, isolated from their context, you might not think that this really has anything to do with trials. Uh, We can, of course, see that poverty is a trial. We can understand that. Uh, But also, wealth is a trial. Riches are trials. And this is what James is talking about. We know that because verses 2 through 4... Is talking about the nature of trials in general. Verses 5 through 8 is talking about us having wisdom in trials. 
And then if we were to look at verse 12, our, the next verse after our text this morning, it picks up with trials again. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trials. So all of this is dealing with trials. So poverty is a trial and riches are trials. Now it might seem a little odd to say that riches are trials. There was a play first and then they turned it into the a movie in uh, the 1971, I believe, called Fiddler on the Roof. Have you seen Fiddler on the Roof? Well, uh, one of the main characters in Fiddler on the Roof was a guy named Tavay. And another character said to Tavay, he said this, money is the world's curse. Tavay responded by saying, may the Lord smite me with it and may I never recover. <laughs> so we don't often think of riches as trials, but they are. They can be trials. They are trials. And we'll see that as we work our way through this text. Now, there is an interpretive issue here, a bit of an interpretive challenge in verses 9, 10, 11. The heart of this passage contrasts the brother of humble circumstances, the one who is poor. And we know that that's talking about poverty because it's in contrast with the rich man, right? So humble circumstances, poverty, contrast this poor believer with the rich man. Now, the interpretive issue is this. Clearly, the one who is poor is a, is a Christian, is a believer, the brother of humble circumstances. But what about the rich man? Is the rich man a believer? Or is the rich man just any old rich man who is unregenerate, an unbeliever? Well, there's a little bit of evidence for both lines of thinking in this. Let me give you the evidence that the rich man is dealing, talking about an unbeliever. Number one, uh, James does not portray the rich in a very favorable light in his letter. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, James talks about those who are rich, and he portrays them as those who oppress Christians, who oppress his readers, drag them into courts, and even blaspheme the fair name, the name of Jesus, blaspheme the fair name by which they have been called. Later in chapter 5, he deals with the rich again, and once again is a very negative portrayal. He says, come now you who are rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And he talks about how the rich uh, persecute and even kill the righteous men. So the rich don't get a very favorable portrayal in the book of James. So that's, that's the line of thinking that James here is talking about an unbeliever. But I'm not convinced of that. In fact, I'm convinced that that is not who he was talking about. Uh, if he was talking about an unbeliever... His point here would be that the rich should glory in his humiliation. And basically what he would be saying is this. If you're rich, an unbeliever, rich, boast while you have a chance. Because when this short vapor of a life is over, you'll have nothing to boast about except your destruction. And so that's the line of thinking. But I'm not convinced at all that he is talking about a rich unbeliever. I believe he is talking about a rich believer, a rich brother in the Lord. Evidences for this. Uh, undoubtedly, most of James' audience were very poor. Remember in verse 1, he, said he was writing to those who were dispersed, the dispersion, those who were, who were forced out of their homes because of persecution from Herod Agrippa, and they were forced to leave their homes rather quickly and so could not take much with them if they had much at all in the first place. So the vast majority of his recipients would have been poor people. However, not all of the recipients of his letter were poor. Not all the people to whom he was speaking 
were poor. And we know that to be the case from chapter 4 in verses 13 through 17. James says something very interesting. He says, come now, you who say we will go to, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. So apparently some of his readers did have some wealth. They did have some means. They could travel about. They could go to a different city. They could spend a year there. They could do business and they could make a profit. So not everybody to whom he was writing was poor. Some were wealthy. And I believe that the structure of the passage gives overwhelming evidence that he is indeed talking about a poor believer and a rich believer. Basically, James is saying this. The poor believer should glory, should boast in his exaltation, in his lofty position. The rich believer should boast, should glory in his humiliation. So he is speaking of believers, both the rich and the poor. So let's work our way through this text now. Verse 9, James says, The brother of humble circumstances, the poor, is to glory in his high position. That word glory is also rendered boast, can be used in either way. So the poor man is to boast in his high position. Now that might sound a bit odd at first because generally when we think of boasting, how boasting is portrayed in the Bible, it's not portrayed in a good way, right? We're not supposed to boast, right? First uh, Peter chapter 5, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So how is it that these people are actually commanded to boast? Boasting in and of itself is not the issue. Boasting in and of itself is not the problem. The question is, is the cause for boasting and the object of your boasting. What is causing you to boast? In what are you boasting? What is the object of your boasting? Boasting in ourselves is utterly and completely sinful. There is never an excuse to boast in ourselves. It is always, always wrong, 100% of the time. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Boasting in and of itself is not wrong. Boasting in ourselves is wrong. The one who is poor is to boast in his exalted high position, our position in Christ. Most of James' recipients were poor indeed. Most Christians throughout the 2,000 year history of the Christian church have been poor. Most Christians have been poor throughout history and to this day. Genuine Christians, true Christians, are looked down upon. I'm going to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, you can flip there if you would like. This thing is picked up with the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. Paul says this, he says, For consider your calling, brethren. What calling is that calling to salvation? Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Notice that Paul does not say not any. He says not many, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. We are not to boast in ourselves. But we are commanded to boast in our exalted position in Christ. Poverty is a trial. Last year, May of last year, I had the opportunity to go to India and preach in uh, Kakanada, India, a town on the eastern coast of India. I went with my friend and board member, Mike Miller, and a lot of our time was spent with a pastor and his family, and they lived in this small home. It was a three-story home, but don't think a three-story house like we would picture here. Uh, very, very narrow very narrow, probably not much wider than this platform. India is very densely populated, very narrow home, but three, three floors. The first floor, the pastor and his wife and three kids lived. The middle floor was reserved for their church. They had a, a small church that met on the middle floor, and the top floor was for orphans and widows. They had 25 orphans and 25 widows living on the third floor in this small little tiny house. And I couldn't, they had to carry me up the steps. Steps are very steep in there. They had to carry me up the steps to get to the second floor. So I never went up to the third floor. I didn't see it. Mike did. But it's such a small area. There's no room for beds. Uh, the widows and the orphans just laid literally on, on blankets on the floor. That, and there was, it was hot as blazes, literally 120 degrees when we were there, no air conditioning. But we had a service on the middle floor. Mike preached, I preached, and one of the services, the widows and the orphans came down to join us on the middle floor. They came down, and I'll never forget, there was this old, old widow. Uh, she had to be somewhere in the neighborhood, 90 years old, very sick, um, dying, and she could not even walk on her own. They picked her up. And they carried her downstairs, and they put a blanket on the floor for her, and they laid her on that blanket. Ninety-somewhere years old, so sick, I think she had cancer, but very sick, dying in the, in the last stages of life. So weak and feeble, she could not even sit up. She just laid there. But she listened to Mike teach. She listened to me teach for over three hours. And when it was over, the widows and the orphans went upstairs, uh, and I didn't see this at the time, but they picked her up and they actually carried her downstairs. I'm not sure why, but they carried her downstairs. And it was a, an hour or so later that we managed our, uh, to get our way out of the house and, and leave, go into another place. But as I was walking out of their home, I was walking by, and there was this little closet, basically, to the right. And uh, the door was open, and so I just kind of looked in there, and there was that widow. They had a little pallet for her. She was laying on it. And I looked at her, and we made eye contact. And she did her hands together like this. And did like that. And she just made the words, thank you. Thank you. From society, she doesn't have any lower to go. A widow with not a penny to her name, dying. 
lying on a floor. But she wanted to hear the word of God taught. And she thanked me for it. Let the poor man boast in his exalted position. And dear ones, let me tell you, that widow laying on that floor, dying, she is in a far more exalted position than Bill Gates or Zuckerberg or the President of the United States, whoever he happens to be. She is in a far more exalted position than any of them. We are not to boast in ourselves. We are to boast in our exalted position in Christ. John MacArthur states in his commentary on James, he says, the poor believer, quote, may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the water of life. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has been eternally received by God. He may have no home on earth, but he has a glorious abode in heaven. That is what it means to boast in your exalted position in Christ. The poor believer may have little, if anything, on this earth, but he has eternal riches that cannot compare to anything that this world has to offer. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, And if children, children of God, and if you are a child of God, you are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified in him. It does not matter how poor a person may be on this earth. If he is in Christ, he is in an exalted position. And when we leave this short life on earth, we will go and we will spend all of eternity in heaven. We will be in perfect worship of, fellowship with, in service to the King of Kings. We will spend all of eternity enjoying the one, basking in the presence of the one who spoke the universe into existence and who gave his life for us. The poor believer may boast in his exalted position. Verse 10. And the rich man is to glory, is to boast in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Now, we read this and we see that James says that the rich man is to boast in his humiliation. Now, don't think that this does not apply to yourself too quickly. Don't automatically think, oh, well, I'm not rich. Don't think this doesn't apply to you, because you know what? It applies to each and every person in here. All of us in this room are rich. Oh, Justin, I'm, I'm not rich. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. I'll give you a few statistics. There's about 7 billion, with a B, 7 billion people on this earth. 3 billion, almost half of the people on this planet, 3 billion people live on less than $2.50 a day. Do you make more than that? Well, you're in the, at least the top half of the wealthiest people in the, in the world. 80% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day, $300 a month. 80% of the world's population lives on less than that. And I would dare say that most, maybe all of us, make more than $10 a day. 
almost two billion people, a quarter of the world's population, does not have water piped into their own homes. 25% of the world's population doesn't even have water in their homes. They have to walk to get it. But not everybody who does have water in their homes has means to them. A few years ago, I was in Uganda, and uh, Mike and I went to Uganda as well. And we were staying with Pastor Bill, Bill Issa. He's one of the very, at the least at the time, one of the very few doctrinally sound pastors that we knew of in the entire country of Uganda. But we went and uh, we spent some time with Pastor Bill, and he invited us into his home, he and his wife and his five children. And they had water in their home. One spigot, one spigot of water, that's it. One little sink, and that was the water for the whole house. But their house was deplorable. Their house was filthy. Their bathroom, they don't even have a toilet. Their bathroom was just a basically a broom closet with a concrete floor that slanted out to the outside. And they go in there, and that's where they bath, not with water, because they don't have water run to it. They take buckets of water and they just slosh themselves and clean that way but they use the bathroom in there and I don't want to get too graphic but solid and liquid waste on the floor and there's a hole in the wall there's just a little hole in the outside wall and they push the waste through that hole in the outside wall now none of us can relate to anything like that but they have water in their home. 25% of the world's population doesn't even have that. So, dear friends, we don't have to be a millionaire to be rich. We don't have to be Bill Gates to be considered rich. All of us in this room, compared to the vast majority of people around the world, we are extraordinarily wealthy. And I tell people, you really have to get out of the United States of America. You have to get out of this country before you realize what we really do have here. It's a different world out there. No pun intended. James says the rich believer is to boast in his humiliation. What is this humiliation? Even though rich, the genuine believer, the true materially rich Christian, one who unashamedly proclaims faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about a cultural Christian. I'm talking about a real Christian, a real wealthy Christian. A genuine Christian, not someone who, not one of these ridiculous celebrities that goes around wearing a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. I'm not talking about someone, some football player who scores the winning touchdown and he says, I just want to thank Jesus for winning this game, as if God is a favorite football team. I'm, not talk, I'm talking about real Christians. I'm talking about those who truly believe the word of God and live it out. Even though this person may be wealthy materially, he will be looked down upon by the world. The world will look down upon even wealthy believers. Dear friends, when you became a Christian, when God saved you, you joined the most hated, the most despised, the most mocked, the most ridiculed, the most persecuted group of people on the planet. Congratulations. Even wealthy Christians are mocked and looked down upon by the world. And we as believers, as those of us who are wealthy believers, and by world standards, that would include all of us in here, we should rejoice in this humiliation. Rejoice in the humiliation. First Peter chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, or Peter says, excuse me, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Rejoice in the world looking down on you. Rejoice, glory, boast in your persecution. Now, a word of caution, a word of caution. As I say that, a word of caution. Please don't go around looking for persecution. Don't manufacture it. If you're living godly in Christ Jesus, you won't have to manufacture persecution. It'll come. All of those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what, that's what Paul says. Not, not some, not most, all will be persecuted if you are living godly in Christ Jesus. So if you have to go around trying to manufacture some persecution, then you're probably not living godly in Christ Jesus. Don't manufacture it. And don't, don't come up and say, oh yeah, well I was at work and they were telling some dirty jokes and I didn't laugh and so they made fun of me and, you know, I was, I was persecuted, you know, sniff, sniff, wipe the tear. That's not persecution. Don't manufacture it. If, if you do that to try to get, engender some sympathy or so other people will think well of you for that, enjoy it while you can because God is not honored by that. Don't manufacture it. Don't go looking for it. It will come. Like the flowering grass, James says, the rich will pass away. Humiliation is not only defined by the world looking down upon us. Humiliation is also defined here as the transitory nature of material goods and physical well-being. Material goods and the health of our own physical, physical bodies is transitory. It is temporary. James says, like the flowering grass, he will pass away. Dear friends, riches pass away. It does not matter how much we have. One day they will pass away. Moth and rust destroy. And when we die, we will not be taking our wealth with us. Psalm chapter 49, verses 16 through 17. The psalmist says this. Do not be amazed when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His splendor will not descend after him. You may have heard people say from time to time, well, what's money good for you because you're not going to take it with you? Those words, exact words are not in the Bible, but the concept certainly is, and it's right there in Psalm chapter 49. His splendor will not descend after him. Our monetary goods will pass away, our wealth will pass away, and also our bodies will pass away. Our health will pass away. Dear friends, it does not matter how much you have. You cannot bathe. I don't care if you have a billion dollars in the bank. You can't buy youth. You know what I find just sad? Is when you look at TV and you look at all these celebrities and they're aging, these aging celebrities, and you look at their faces and you can tell that they have gone and they have had work done, right? And you see these celebrities and, and they just look sad. I mean, it's just embarrassing. You see these old celebrities and they're trying to hold on to their youth in vain. They're trying to hold on to it. And they've had this and that nipped and tucked and their skin is stretched out and their eyes are like this and their lips are big and poofy. And, and they just look, they look ridiculous, do they not? Sad. They're trying to hold on to something that they can't hold on to. There's a lady on Christian television, Kathy and I were talking about it last night. I can't even remember her name off the top of my head, which is probably good, but uh, she's on quote-unquote Christian television. She has her own television show. And this uh, lady who's got to be in her 80s. And, 
you, our, our face is just, it looks like something out of a carnival act. I mean, everything has been stretched and her, her lips are big and puffy, just grotesquely so. And she's got these huge, thick eyebrows, like Groucho Marx eyebrows. And, and it, it's, she looks like a circus act. And it's pathetic. It's pathetic. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how good you of health you may be in right now. It will all pass away. Money cannot buy youth. Peter quotes Isaiah in his book, First Peter chapter one. He says, "All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever." Our flesh is like grass. It fades. Let's look at verse 11. James says, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off. The beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Springtime in Israel is known for its beautiful flowers. Spring comes very early in Israel, a lot earlier than it does here. It comes in February. And in February in Israel, the, the fields and the meadows just almost overnight, they just come to life. And there's beautiful flowers everywhere, blue, red, yellow, pink. And, and the, the meadows are just alive with a vibrant color. It's a beautiful spring. But there's a wind that kicks up not long after the flowers bloom. And the wind, they give it a name, it's called Sirocco. And this wind starts blowing. It's an east wind. It's a very, very hot wind. And once that wind starts blowing, it really doesn't stop for months. Day and night, this wind blows almost all the time. And once that wind starts blowing, those flowers that were once so beautiful fade away. They wilt very quickly. The grass withers. The flower fades. And that's what James is speaking of here. Youth fades. Health fades. And the Tense here is aorist, the aorist tense in the Greek. Now, I know that blesses your heart and warms your soul, but what, what James is saying by using this tense, he is emphasizing the completeness of the withering, the completeness and the suddenness of it. It happens very, very quickly. This life is very, very fragile. And notice, too, James says the rich in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Oftentimes right in the midst of pursuit, sometimes at the, at the zenith of life, right? Where we're, we're in our, our 30s, our mid-30s, and, and we're, everything's going well. All of a sudden, life may come to an end. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow will fade away. Now, notice that this is expected. Flowers bloom and they die year after year, cycle after cycle. It, is, it happens, it's expected, but at times it can be very, very sudden. Life is very fragile. We are to boast in a wealth being temporary. The wealthy are to boast in the temporary nature of our wealth, of our material goods, even of our health. And also this, humiliation, I believe, also in view here with humiliation is this, that even as a rich Christian, even as a rich Christian, dear ones, you and I are identified in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our identification is in Christ. And Jesus was despised, was he not? He was despised and rejected of men. And so we are to boast in our identification, that humiliation 
that we share with the Lord Jesus. Now, some lessons that I want us to glean from this text of Scripture dealing in a general nature with poverty and wealth. Dear friends, poverty is a trial. Wealth is a trial. How? Poverty is a trial because poverty has some unique temptations that come along with it. One, of course, the temptation to steal. If you're desperately poor, there's a temptation to steal, to get something from nothing. That's one temptation. Another temptation that comes along with poverty is envy, covetousness, coveting something that someone else has that we do not. That is sinful. To envy, to covet, is to tell God that we are not satisfied with his provision for us. I'm not satisfied, God, with what you've done for me because I want what he has. I want what she has. I want that. And when we say that, when we complain about that, we are saying to God that we're not satisfied with what you've done for us. God who owes, who owes us nothing. God who would be entirely just to send each and every one of us to hell. And yet he doesn't. He has saved us by the riches of his grace. And he has given us all these blessings on top of that. And then we're going to complain about that. Really? We're going to complain about what we don't have when all we deserve is hell? It's a very offensive sin to God to complain. Those are the trials of poverty. Also, wealth is a trial. How is wealth a trial? Wealth is a trial in a few ways. One, wealth engenders self-sufficiency, doesn't it? When our bodies are working right, when we have plenty of money in the bank, we tend to be self-sufficient. We tend not to lean as hard on God as we would otherwise. Real tendency to be self-sufficient when we have plenty of money. Temptation of materialism, wanting more and more. And also, wealth engenders with it a temptation for pride. Look what I've done. Look what I've created. Look at my business. Look at how it's flourishing. Look at what I've made. A lot of wealth carries with it a temptation for a lot of pride. There's, dear friends, I want to say this. There's a temptation and there's a danger that many of us fall into. Oftentimes we think that there's something inherently wrong with being wealthy. We kind of have this general idea that the Bible portrays wealth in a bad light, that it's, that it's sinful. In and of itself, wealth is not sinful. It's not sinful. Remember Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives us the parable of the rich man Lazarus. Remember that? The rich man had everything that the world could offer. Lazarus had absolutely nothing. Poor, destitute, sick, crippled, diseased, dying, starving. Both of them died. The rich man died. He went to the lake of fire. Lazarus died and he went to heaven, to Abraham's bosom. It would be wrong to think that the rich man died and went to the lake of fire because he was rich. It would be wrong to think that Lazarus died and went to heaven because he was poor. Each man, man went where he was spiritually prepared to go. There is nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy, nor is there anything inherently honorable in being poor. Okay, There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing honorable in being poor. There are a lot of poor people out there who are scoundrels, loathsome, despicable, vile human beings who aren't worth the blood it would take to shoot them. There's a lot of loathsome poor people out there. And you know what? There's a lot of really nice rich people out there. There's a lot of very kind, generous, even humble, wealthy people. 
So there's nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing inherently honorable in being poor. So don't fall into that trap. In fact, the Bible has a number of examples of wealthy people who are faithful servants of God. Abraham, he was extraordinarily wealthy. Job, he was wealthy. Barzillai, 2 Samuel chapter 19, Barzillai was a man who was known for his faithfulness to King David and his faithfulness to God. He was a very wealthy man and he used his wealth to serve others, to help others and to serve God. He was portrayed in a very good light. Joseph of Arimathea, remember him? He was a very wealthy man. He was a follower of Christ and allowed Jesus to be buried in his own personal tomb. Very wealthy man. Jesus didn't stay in that tomb for long. But the Bible is full of examples of wealthy people who are faithful servants of God. So don't fall into the trap thinking, oh, well, there's something inherently wrong with being wealthy. If you have worked hard, if you've been a hard worker and you've been wise with your money and God has blessed you and you have some material wealth, there's no need to be embarrassed by that. Be grateful for it. Be grateful for it as coming from the sovereign hand of God. Don't take pride in what you've done. Take pride in what God has given you. Remember a few years ago, Barack Obama, he was talking about business owners, and he said, if you have a business, you didn't build that. Remember that? Well, he was right, but he wasn't for the right for the reasons that he thinks. Everything that comes to us comes from the gracious hand of God. So don't boast in yourselves. Be grateful for what God has given and use it for the glory of God. Conclude with this. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 through 9. If you have a pen, you might want to jot that verse down. This should be kind of our guiding verse as it comes to wealth and riches and poverty. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 through 9. says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not be full and deny you and say, Who is Yahweh? Or that I may not be in want and steal and profane, the name of my God. Be grateful for what God has given you and whatever he has given you, use it for his glory. Dear friends, wealth will pass away. Our bodies will pass away. Health will pass away. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we have an inheritance that does not pass away. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, your word serves to remind us of the transitory nature of wealth, of our bodies, how fleeting it is, how very quickly it fades away, how very quickly it withers. So, Father, whether we are wealthy and all of us in here would be compared to the standard of the world, whether we are wealthy or whether we are poor, there are unique trials and temptations that come with both. Help us to be content with what you have given us and what you have given us. May we be good stewards of it and thankful for it. We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, through whom we do indeed have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, and will never fade away, reserved in heaven for us. It's in Christ's name we pray.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.